does the president when it comes to picking the VP? Well, as the president said yesterday, he has about 25% towards one person. That's not a lot, Jesse, okay? 25%. We are very much focused on winning the New Hampshire primary tomorrow. Genuinely looking over all okay. of the candidates. I will say this. Yes. He did tell Fox News' very own Brett Barrow yesterday yes. that the most important quality for him is someone who he knows will make a great president after he's out of office. I think that's very important. Okay, that's interesting. I heard a secret name. Kellyanne Conway just brought it to our attention. Marco Rubio for VP. Now, I hadn't even seen his name on a list anywhere, but then when I thought about it, I thought, huh, that's interesting. Hmm. Well, I will say this. The Republican Party has a very deep bench. Marco Rubio endorsed the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, as well as Senator Rick Scott, before Ron DeSantis even dropped out of this race, showing the power President Trump has from the great state of Florida. You are in this race, too. Trump 2024, baby. I need this. I'm going to carve you up. For vice president. For America. Thursday, February 1st, 2024, the most important decision in America, arguably. Donald Trump's vice presidential selection. What will he do? Why do we obsess over all of this? We cover in the show today. We also will be interviewing a man who is the only person in America to successfully lobby Donald Trump for the position of vice president, along with the official biographer of one of Donald Trump's favorite potential VP picks. Ooh, baby, a spicy show. My name is Benny Johnson, and you are in the arena. The Vice Presidential Race Awards. We couldn't help ourselves. Where do they stand right now? Well, the most recent polling in the Vice Presidential Ticket Race has Vivek Ramaswamy up top, followed closely by Tucker Carlson, Ben Carson, some familiar names there, Tim Scott, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Carrie Lake, Elise Stefanik, Glenn Youngkin, Byron Donalds, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But, ladies and gentlemen, who knows? It's anybody's ballgame right now. Or is it? And why exactly are we so obsessed about this question? Why is everybody feverishly attempting to figure out who this person will be? Well, because Donald Trump will be constitutionally limited to one term in office. Those terms go very, very quickly. And also, you could have a divided Congress, right? Uh, you don't you have no guarantee that Republicans will be in control of the House or the Senate. And so will you be able to get anything done? Will you be able to create a lasting movement? That is something that is really prescient on the minds of those who wish for America first to outlive Donald Trump. And Donald Trump wishes for that, actually. Donald Trump has said in public and in private that he wants somebody who's young, who's energetic, who can carry forward the torch. As, again, he will be constitutionally limited. Now, we've all seen the disaster of the Mike Pence pick, how Mike Pence became a Judas very quickly, and then worked to sabotage Donald Trump running for president again 
betraying America first and the movement that brought him to the dance, if you will. Now, recently, Donald Trump was on stage saying, I've already made my selection. Watch this clip, and I'll tell you exactly who I almost guaranteed I knew it was going to be after seeing Trump do this live. Who would be in the running for a vice president? Well, I can't tell you that, really. I mean, I know who it's going to be. Give us a hand. I'll give you, we'll do another show sometime. Well, what about any of the people who you've run against? Would you be open to mending fences with any of them? Oh, sure, I will, I will. I've already started like Christy better. Uh, (laughs) So, Donald Trump making a joke. That was the day that Chris Christie dropped out. The Iowa caucuses happened, the New Hampshire primaries happened, Trump wins in landslides, and everything's changed now all of a sudden. When I saw that clip at first, I said, it's going to be Tucker. Donald Trump's making a joke. Just the way that he demurs to the Fox News host. Oh, you're going to have to do a show on him sometime. (laughs) He says, I'm going to shove Tucker Carlson's name into your mouth. We'll be joined soon by Tucker Carlson biographer Chadwick Moore to talk more about this. Now, this is Melania's favorite choice for vice president. Apparently, Melania Trump's a big fan of Tucker. That makes a lot of sense, I guess, right? Defender of her husband. And apparently Trump is a big fan of Tucker as well. Trump was asked on the record if he would choose Tucker as a vice presidential pick. And, um, well, it's not a no. Would Tucker Carlson be on your list of potential VPs? And how many names might be on that list as you sit and look and survey the political field? Well, first of all, you know, I did my first, uh, you could call it counter-programming, but I, I won't call it that. But uh, Tucker wanted to do an interview during the first debate. And I think you know, because this is what your business is, we broke every record. Monster audience. In history. Yeah. I think it just hit over 300 million people. Talk about it. Would you consider it's, it's t- Tucker, though, that they, based on the I like Tucker a lot. I guess I would. I think I'd say I would. Because he's got great common sense. You know, when they say that you guys are conservative or I'm conservative it's not that we're conservative. We have common sense. I like Tucker. He has great common sense. He thinks like me. He acts like me. Talks like me. Just like me. I'm the real Slim Shady, says Donald Trump. And is Tucker Carlson the man who is standing behind Trump to inherit this movement? Well, I mean, many would argue, yes, of course, if you've been watching Tucker Carlson recently. You've seen clips like this. Tucker Carlson walking out on stage in Canada to the uproarious applause of what is absolutely a sports arena filled with people. Tell me this doesn't look like somebody running for office. I mean, come on. I mean, maybe it's just an innocent speech, but this is a movement here that Tucker Carlson has. And that's not even in in America, right? We've been backstage with Tucker at these events for Turning Point, and it's like the same thing. It's like roaring. It's got a stadium atmosphere to it. So Tucker Carlson seems to be like a wise selection for trump of course these two guys would have to come to an agreement on this i asked tucker carlson recently about this on a public twitter spaces check it out tucker there i'm sitting here looking at an article right now from axios and this article uh says that melania trump wants you to be the vice presidential candidate for donald trump with donald trump in 2024 what do you say to melania trump well, she hasn't texted me that, and it's in, you know, a publication published in Washington. So I'm going to I'm gonna kind of reserve judgment on that. Obviously, I'm flattered if it's true. I like Melania. I don't really know her. 
but she's Eastern European, so that suggests we have exactly the same attitudes about everything. Um, <laughs> so I'm flattered. <laughs> Tucker making a joke about it. Tucker's demurred in various other interviews, saying, oh, well, actually, maybe Vivek Ramaswamy would be a great choice. Nonetheless, Donald Trump alluding to the interview with Tucker Carlson, it was one of the most watched interviews in American history, done some 400 million views on X. And so, I don't know, looks like a pretty handsome ticket to me, but things can change at the dance. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, just a few days before the New Hampshire primaries, Donald Trump was singing a different tune. He was whistling Dixie, and now, well, he's saying the musical chairs haven't stopped just yet. Donald Trump saying during one interview with Brett Baer that he was sure of his VP pick, and during the next interview that um, there's only a 25% certainty for his choice. <laughs> That's Trump for you, watch. You said in our town hall that you had an idea, or you might have already decided about your VP pick. When do you think you're going to make that? Well, it's never really had that much of an effect on an election, which is an amazing thing. Both election and primary, it's never really had much of an effect. I may or may not release something uh, over the next couple of months. There's no rush to that. It won't have any impact at all. The person that I think I like is a very good person, pretty standard. I think people won't be that surprised. But I would say there's probably a 25% chance it would be that person. Is Senator Tim Scott on the list now? No, he's So 25% chance it would be that person. From I've already made the selection, 25% chance, and anybody who knows Trump will tell you that the man makes gut instincts based on available evidence and emotions and overall vibe during the time frame when he needs to make that decision. You just, bam, okay, that's the person. It'll be a spur of the moment. It'll be a gut thing. So has it all changed? Well, holy smokes, Tucker Carlson, who was sort of leading the pack for a lot of people chattering about this, has now been replaced in many polls by Vivek. And you've seen The Apprentice in real time with Vivek Ronswamy on the trail with Donald Trump after the razzle-dazzle endorsement of Donald. Uh, Vivek's been hitting the campaign trail hard for Trump, and, uh, and Trump stands behind him like a proud father, calling him a dynamo. Check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, that's how was that? Pretty good, right? So the host of The Apprentice is, well, embracing his apprentice as the crowd chance VP at Vivek. Donald Trump, of course, noticing this, obviously, in that clip, and calling Vivek a dynamo, something we haven't heard Trump say in a while. We also haven't heard Trump call somebody perfect, but he did Vivek. Interesting that. Watch. And so would Ron have been, but he decided to get out. He decided to get out. Now, Vivek, I don't think, would be at all because he's perfect, right? <laughs> And Tim Scott, I know, would never. That's no chance. So you saw Tim Scott there on stage, another guy who is in the speculation race for VP. Tim Scott, not my favorite, but certainly somebody that would make an interesting pick. Apparently, he's getting engaged and everything, shoring himself up to potentially get the rose from Donald Trump. 
Now, all of them have been campaigning together, leading to interesting little photo ops like this. Vivek Raswami even sharing memes of himself holding up the notepad. The MAGA Avengers Trump has assembled reads the headlines. And so the race is on, ladies and gentlemen. But it's not just Vivek Ranswamy versus Tucker Carlson versus Tim Scott. There's sort of an uh, interesting and deep bench of names. Somebody that uh, knows a lot about Donald Trump and has his ear in this process is Matt Gates. The two like each other quite a bit. And Matt Gates is telling Trump Sarah Sanders. But does it matter who the VP pick is? And do you have any, I don't know, any sort of indication? Uh, what's his name? Uh, Gorka told me he knew who it was on Thursday. Do you have any ideas? If I were in President Trump's position, I would pick Sarah Huckabee Sanders, someone with executive experience, someone who knows the battle space, uh, a fierce, loyal defender of President Trump, someone who has great credibility with the MAGA movement, uh, someone who I think can hurt uh, can hurt Joe Biden with searing critique and can help us with a lot of suburban moms who live the life of Sarah Huckabee Sanders every day. So she's my top pick. Uh, I don't know who it's going to be, but I, I, I mean, I, we can all I, have a that favorite, was, right? That was a so Sarah Sanders, given an opportunity to respond to this, let's see. And you'd be open to vetting to be his vice president, potentially? Look, I absolutely love the job I have. I think it's one of the best jobs okay. I could ever ask for, and I am honored to serve as governor, and I hope I get to do it for the next seven years. Next seven years. All right. That sounds like two terms, maybe a no. <laughs> the media should learn more how to like ask these questions because it gets like really pathetic. Like she said, the lady said what she's going to say. She was the White House press secretary. This is the line. Nobody wants to say like, yeah, I'm totally in the running. But obviously Sarah Sanders is in the running. You can see that Sarah Sanders is someone who's had Trump's back from day one. Very successful governor of Arkansas. Uh, low key but doing uh, like really wonderful work in that state, friend of the show. And so, of course, we uh, may the odds ever be in her favor. You know what I mean? Ben Carson also has been floated around. Ben Carson, somebody who's been very loyal to Donald Trump, something that Mike Pence wasn't. Uh, these are qualities that, of course, Donald Trump will be looking for as he looks for the young and energetic person to carry forward the MAGA movement. Uh, does energetic describe Ben Carson? No. But has Ben Carson gotten the call to be VP? Well, he says yes. <laughs> Watch. This is also one of the reasons President Trump is doing so well in the polls. Has President Trump contacted you to be his VP? Uh, I don't want to talk about what we've talked about, but we've, we've talked about what can we do to save this country and that we will work together to make sure that America remains America. There's yeah. so many things that are going on right now, you, you know, compromising the DOJ, using it to injure your opponents politically. These are things that occur in, in China and Russia and Cuba. Those are not things that are supposed to occur in this country. Yeah. And we should be alarmed. And I think the American people are alarmed. OK, so Carolyn Levitt, who's the national press secretary, uh, was on our program recently and said that Trump is looking for energetic uh, young and somebody who's able to carry MAGA forward. Not sure I describe Ben Carson as energetic and young, but we love Ben Carson. Okay. So we, we're not hating. 
We're lovers on this channel, not haters. Like Ben Carson a lot. May the odds ever be in your favor. However, it there was an asset created by the internet that uh, certainly perked our ears when uh, it crossed our feed that Tucker Carlson had cut a, tr a Trump ad. What this is is actually a mashup, right, by Meme Lord. This is not an official ad sanctioned by the Trump campaign, although it should be. But this sort of shows you the power of a non-Mike Pence-style pick for Donald Trump. Again, the bench is deep. There is actually a wonderful and uh, very exciting reservoir of talent on the right, uh, self-made talent, uh, knows the grindstone, like gritty, right? Like talent, like, like truly disciplined and a group of people that could definitely add something and not detract. I always thought that Mike Pence potentially detracted from Donald Trump. And this ad shows you how magical, actually, a voice like Tucker's could be to the campaign. Enjoy. Millions of Americans sincerely love Donald Trump. They love him in spite of everything they've heard. They love him often in spite of himself. They love Donald Trump because no one else loves them. The country they built, the country their ancestors fought for over hundreds of years, has left them to die in their unfashionable little towns, mocked and despised by the sneering halfwits with finance degrees, but no actual skills who seem to run everything all of a sudden. Whatever Donald Trump's faults, he is better than the rest of the people in charge. At least he doesn't hate them for their weakness. Donald Trump, in other words, is and has always been a living indictment of the people who run this country. That was true four years ago when Trump came out of nowhere to win the presidency. And it's every bit as true right now. Trump rose because they failed. It's as simple as that. If the people in charge had done a halfway decent job with the country they inherited, if they cared about anything other than themselves, even for just a moment, Donald Trump would still be hosting Celebrity Apprentice, but they didn't. Instead, they were incompetent and narcissistic and cruel and relentlessly dishonest. They wrecked what they didn't build. They lied about it. They hurt anyone who told the truth about what they were doing. That's true. We watched. America is still a great country, the best in the world, but our ruling class is disgusting. A vote for Trump is a vote against them. That's what's going on in this country. Chills, right? Come on, chills. What an exciting time to be alive. And what an interesting time to be paying attention. There is a brand new energy out there. It is a kinetic force that our political elites have never seen before. They're very scared of it. And so it gives us a lot of hope. Tucker Carlson cutting ads, being the voice of the Trump campaign, that's powerful. And so it's a neat moment. Don't miss it. Absorb that energy and help us fight for something uh, that's going to really, truly be remarkable, save the country. There's one man who's actually advised Donald Trump on the vice presidency position, gotten his man into the role, and served then as the chief of staff. Nick Ayers is his name, chief of staff to the vice president during Trump's first term. He's also the co-founder of the Every Life Diaper brand that my children happen to use 
So Nick Ayers joins the show now to give us his wisdom on Donald Trump's vice presidential selection process. Mr. Ayers, thank you so much for being on the program. I welcome you, of course, because I'm a fan of what you've done professionally for our country and in the Trump administration. But I'm also, on a personal level, a big-time fan of the Every Life diaper product, of which you are the co-founder of. This diaper product actually uh, keeps keeps everything together uh, for my kids. Here is my youngest daughter, Juliet, who's 18 months old, dancing last Friday night uh, to her heart's content to a live band in a hotel or down the street from me. And because of every life, well, she's able to dance the night away as a toddler. So Wonderful. thank you, sir. No, thank you. The uh, Every Life was personal for me. I've been blessed to do a lot of investments that have done well and companies I'm proud of, but none is more personal uh, to me than, than Every Life. Jamie and I are blessed with 11-year-old triplets. And so as a, a father of triplets, you could imagine, Benny, you you learn a lot about diapers and uh, the necessity, <laughs> the importance of them, you know, being high quality and wonderful. And it was sort of stunning to me as we were growing and scaling Public Square, we were watching that the number one search that yielded no results were diaper companies. And we began asking the question, you know, the market's always smarter than the entrepreneur. You just have to catch up to the market. We're, why is the number one search diapers and why are there no alternatives? Well, there were no alternatives because every other major diaper brand supports Planned Parenthood or other causes uh, that destroy innocent life. And so we had the idea and I partnered with two amazing co-founders, Michael and uh, Sarah Gable uh, Seifert or, or one of them in creating America's first, you know, unapologetically pro-life diaper company. And while the values alignment is essential and it's important, um, what was also important to us, again, as a father of, of triplets, is that we actually wanted to produce the best diaper, the highest quality diaper, a, pre a premium diaper that would not have blowouts, that would not have harm harmful materials in it, that would hurt the uh, the baby. And, and every life was born. People want to get back to a time not so long ago, the Trump years, and odds are looking very good for Donald Trump. You're seeing a lot of great trends that direction. Uh, you've been a strong ally of Donald Trump, served in his administration inside of a crucial position uh, as the chief of staff to the vice president. And so, of course, you would have some pretty crystal clear insight as to what Donald Trump is thinking for his next vice presidential selection. I'd like to talk about that on the heels, of course, of your op-ed, which is right here, endorsing Donald Trump, uh, which made a lot of waves, uh, and what you see the path forward being. So, question one. What is the president's strategy in picking a vice president? Uh, number two, how do you keep this America First movement going so it doesn't just become the two and four year stopgap? So the first things first on the who who he will pick as vice president. He has up until the convention to make the decision, as you know. Um, so he has many, many months. Now, he could do something unconventional and no one. Uh, has dealt with American politics more asymmetrically than Donald Trump. It's led to all of the success he's had, which is uh, no one has ever really predicted. I mean, he's, he, he has not followed the company line in achieving the su success he has, but he does have up until the convention. Traditionally, he would make that decision in May or June. I suspect he will. 
Um, because one of the things that I, I, I've never felt like he's gotten enough credit for is how he mulls over decisions. And what I can assure you he's doing right now is he's asking everyone around him from, you know, his top campaign advisors, uh, which have run a phenomenal campaign. But he's asking them, you know, what are the pros and cons of each of these people? What do you think? But he's also, you know, calling members of Congress. What do you think? He's asking his major donors and his top grassroots leaders um, who excites them. What what drives that excitement? Um, the other thing he's doing, and this is the part that he doesn't get enough credit for, he will wait all of those important constituencies just as much as he will wait uh, the, the person who serves him a hamburger and or the person who opens a door for him. And what I always admire about him is it's not just, oh, he's good with people and it's a tactic. He genuinely is a is a sponge of seeking knowledge and information. And and it's it's a I would describe it as being very flat. It's just whoever has the most interesting opinion or or concept or idea can rise to the top in his world. He's not going to to weight it because of a title or a role. And so I suspect that he'll use the next several months to, you know, he'll probably narrow it down to five to eight people that he's constantly engaging in people whom he respects and getting their information. What do they think and what drives them and why that is? And so you're you're predicting a convention pick. So some somewhere this somewhere this summer, beginning of the summer. I don't know that I would. Well, I'm I'm predicting that there's just as much of a chance that he does something completely asymmetric. It would it would not surprise me if in two weeks out of nowhere he makes an announcement because that's what he does. You know, it's, <laughs> okay. he's just as likely to pick up the phone and and call the, the the folks running the campaign and say, I've made a decision. Let's get this out in the next 24 to 48 hours. And and he'll have that. There will be some instinct driving that and it will it will go better than most people would expect. So that wouldn't surprise me either. But whether it's in the near term or the long term, um, he will he will hover around a core group. And it's not like, you know, in every other presidential campaign, Benny and mine in your lifetime, what we've watched is a small team of people that are very secretive, will work exclusively exclusively with the nominee and he will confide exclusively in that group and that group will make a decision, right? They go through the vetting folder and then only the group, the group knows who the pick is and that's rolled out. Trump will do it the complete opposite. He will have a committee that's vetting and and they'll, they'll play an important role so there are no surprises, but he will talk to everyone around him. He'll make dozens of calls. Again, members of Congress, donors, grassroots leaders, man on the street, and all of those things will impact his thinking up until the moment he decides this is who it should be. We saw that last week in New Hampshire. We saw this bringing forward of Tim Scott, Vivek, Ron Swamy, right. and, and, and Trump was like, you could see it, man. He was like standing behind Vivek like a proud father when the room erupted for Vivek. And then everyone starts chanting VP and you watch Trump be like, Wow, he's a dynamo, he says. Like you could see like the apprentice in real time. So that's what's going on. That's exactly what's going on. In fact, a funny story that um that had a huge impact on his thinking in, in 2016 when he had it narrowed down to, to three finalists. Um, he watched on live TV Mike Pence do a press conference that generated national news where Pence the day before the Indiana primary had decided 
that he was going to endorse someone. And so Pence comes out. People didn't know who he was going to endorse. Uh, Governor then Governor Pence endorsed Ted Cruz. But he gave a, you know, four or five minute speech on uh, the brilliance of Donald Trump's campaign, the importance of his candidacy, how Donald Trump had inspired millions. He had brought millions into the party that he was giving voice to the forgotten man and how he respected that. He appreciated that. But as a lifelong conservative, I want to know what I'm getting. And so, so here's why I'm endorsing Ted Cruz. Well, two things happened. One, the Cruz people were furious because the whole announcement was about Mike Pence gave a four minute speech, you know, bragging on Donald Trump. And the Cruz people were saying, why didn't you just come out and endorse me? I'll give you. So after that, before that, I was close to, 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 to then Donald Trump and knew him fairly well. After that, for the subsequent four years, became very close to him. And several times he would say, you know, I learned and he was serious. He'd say, I learned a lot about, you know, Mike that day in that uh, no one's ever worked against me so graciously and nicely. And I watched someone with, you know, what I thought was real character and sincerity torn over an announcement. He wanted to go with what he knew, but he admired the way Pence handled that day. And that was like a major data point. So to your point about him watching Vivek and Tim Scott on the stage the other night, that's absolutely irrespective of all the, the echo chamber, all the advice that he'll receive and all the counsel he'll receive with his own two eyes, he's going to watch and think, okay, here are the voters I need. Who, who is appealing to them? What policies um, do, is someone bringing to the forefront and they're passionate, eloquent about making the case on, on those? And, and he will watch all that play out again, whether it's a month from now or four or five months, and in his own mind, he will get very close to a decision and he'll he'll work towards that for a few days. But if he sees something he doesn't like, he's not going to be wed to it all the way up until he walks out on the podium. We'll really know who he's going to select when it comes out of his lips. Prior to that, he's going to constantly be assessing what he thinks improves his chances of winning. And more importantly, uh, who will give him you know, the best partner to govern the country with? Yes. I mean, I think that's what many people in the America First movement truly want. Obviously, you saw Mike Pence then run for president against Donald Trump. A lot of people with a lot of different opinions about that. But most importantly, Mike Pence, not the guy to carry forward the torch of America First. And now everyone from Caroline Levitt to Trump himself saying, what I want is somebody younger, energetic, who's going to carry forth this movement and make it so that it's not in your words, a just a two or four year movement that that drops dead with the strokes of a bunch of executive orders from the next Democrat administration. And so Donald Trump term limited to one term. And so people are now eyeing Sarah Sanders is on the list, obviously um, Ben Carson on the list. I'm not sure energetic is how people would describe Ben Carson. But one name that always percolates up to the top is Tucker Carlson. Um, and people saying that would be that would be one hell of a pick. Uh, apparently, Melania Trump's a big fan. Um, your thoughts on the true asymmetric move here, which would be to tap another outsider uh, from outside of politics to join him. Tucker's a great man. He's uh, he's a great friend. Uh, we share a love of the outdoors. We bonded over fly fishing. Um, actually, many, many years ago, one of the pictures that hang in my garden and gun room is uh, a decade ago, Foster Freeze took a small group of us that included uh, Tucker and Andrew Breitbart, myself, 
and a few others on a uh, on a terrific pheasant hunt in South Dakota, uh, where I really got to know Tucker. I've admired him fighting the good fight, um, uh, fighting for f- free speech, uh, getting to the bottom of stories, irrespective of who it upset. You know, he really focuses on the facts and thrilled with his success. The so I, I he is an intellectual giant. Uh, we, we all know that he has a way of disseminating information, of getting to the bottom of stories uh, better than I think anyone in my generation. Those are all the and he would it would excite the, the base and the grassroots uh, beyond anything we've ever seen. Those are those are the positives there. There are no negatives, per se. The, the thing that the dynamic for both uh, President Trump and Tucker to consider is that Tucker's platform is enormous right now, and he's not only bringing truth to this country. Look at what he's doing abroad, whether it's in Europe or Canada, and he would be leaving that to accept a position that constitutionally has no authority. You're a tie-breaking vote in the Senate, and if the president dies, you become president. That is literally the only thing the vice president does, and I think it's going to be an opportunity cost for the two of them to discuss of where can where's the bigger value add, uh, maintaining arguably the you know largest media uh, platform in the world with the influence and again the way the way to expose hoaxes and um, destroy lies and narratives which he's been very capable of doing and, and exposing the truth is it that or is it being a partner in the White House um, and and being you know the most important advisor but again the trade-off is, you don't actually have any authority or or power or responsibility other than casting a tie-breaking vote. And so that's the that's what would be hard uh, probably for both of them to say is is this really worth it? Because look at the impact Tucker is having now. I think that's only going to exponentially grow. I'm sure you would agree with that as he settles into X and as that platform perfects its ability to do media. Um, I think that would be uh, it's it's certainly doable, but that that would be a hard trade with real opportunity costs for the movement and for the country. Nick, I've checked the Constitution on this exact question. Turns out that there is no amendment prohibiting the vice president from doing a show on X from the vice president's residence. And so he might just he maybe just moves his studio and just does his show as <laughs> vice president. Right. We, uh, we had dinner with Tucker a couple weeks ago, and I, I said, you, think about the JFK Files episode. That'd be huge, because you'd actually have the files. You like, that's what I have. I ordered the files into the studio. Just a thought, just a thought. Vivek Ranswamy, a, uh, a sort of the um, darling of the moment, let's talk about young uh, energy, uh, certainly somebody who has uh, rocked a number of Trump events, uh, you're intricate knowledge about Trump and his decision-making when it comes to VP, many people are saying he's winning all the polls right now, actually, uh, for who could become VP. Uh, Your thoughts on Vivek? Yeah, known Vivek before his rise, not surprised by his rise. In fact, I caught a lot of grief. Uh, It was early last year when Vivek was at less than 1% or maybe at 1%. And and I tweeted, I said, um, you know, I'm summing it up, but essentially everyone should keep their eyes, every candidate should keep their eyes on Vivek and learn how he's speaking and the issues that he 
has immersed himself in and the way he's able to explain these topics in a way that's resonating with voters. And my point, I literally said this in this tweet last year. I said, if, if, if the mainstream and the bigger name candidates don't begin copying what he's doing, he will replace them. And that's exactly what happened. It was totally predictable with someone who actually put in the work, you know, many candidates, um, most actually, you know, just take the poll, you know, okay, my pollster saying these issues matter. I'm going to go talk about education and public safety and foreign policy. And he threw out that script entirely and, and really articulated better than anyone in the country right now, exactly how you and I opened the show, which is what has happened to corporate America? What has happened to capitalism in this country? Why are they using all their profits to expand and cozy up to China while destroying our most important institutions in this country? And he articulated it with such detail and thought and intellect that it connected with voters. And so I'm not surprised uh, what's happened. He's critical for the future of our movement. Whether he's selected as vice president or not, I think you would see a real role for him in the administration. Not my place to say uh, the president has a has a team that will make those decisions, but I, I would be very surprised if he's uh, not in the arena uh, in one important way or the other. Because again, it's not just that he is a gifted uh, speaker. <clears throat> We've seen those before that are a mile wide and an inch deep. This is a guy that can give that speech at depth. Uh, over three or four hours with no notes and back it up with constitutional law. He can uh, apply his business background, which is successful in his own right. And he's become very savvy at politics very quickly. And so I, I think, you know, the, the uh, whether or not he's the right fit for the president, this is not a comment about Vivek. This is just a broader comment that you and I have not discussed yet, Benny. So much of also what the president will think through maybe more than anything is just what is his synergy with a person that will spend as much time with him as his own spouse or maybe more like what is that chemistry like what is that synergy like um what is the trust level and and is there just a camaraderie that's a hard job it's the hardest job in the world and that is a position that you have to fill with someone that that you love being around because if not, we see what's happened with with many former vice presidents in, in previous administrations where when that wedge grows and it happened way earlier than most, you know, the, the mm. president and vice president were actually the greatest allies of one another until right up until the end. Mm. Historically, that wedge is driven much earlier in the process and it becomes an annoyance for the staff of the West Wing. It becomes, you know, an annoyance for the president. And I, and I think the president has learned a lot, uh, not just about who he wants as vice president, but his cabinet and senior staff. And so much of what he'll factor in is who is really with me and this movement for the country versus who is here for themselves and to make a name for themselves or to just replace me uh, in four years. And, and I think that factor will loom larger than probably any other. So you've done two things that shocked me here, Nick, in that answer. One, you've given me a great replacement theory that I agree with, that Vivek should probably replace most of the people running for president uh, in 2024. And then two, you know, you said that many of these politicians are a, a mile wide and an inch deep. And you can just say Chris Christie on our show. I mean, you can just you can do that. Right. You, we have free speech show. You're welcome to it. Um, it is something that obviously uh, tempts the uh, 
uh, creative element of the way that Donald Trump thinks, but he's been saying really nice things about RFK Jr. Like the two, like the two of them have actually like said complimentary things about each other. And it does make us scratch our head a little bit. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, but before you brought that up, and I was not even thinking of RFK when I said it, but but I uh, but I I think a couple times I've already said that if he does something totally asymmetric, no one should be surprised. I think every other campaign uh, at this stage, even the traditional campaigns, would love teasing that story out with the press. It's like an interesting thing for operatives mm-hmm. to talk about. They can fill cable news shows talking about it. Um, President Trump's the one candidate that actually has the, I think, the fortitude that if he thought that that was the best pick for vice president and that he trusted him and would partner with him on an agenda that truly put America first, then he would not worry at all about upsetting the norms. This is a guy that has upset uh, a lot of norms with great success uh, of being unconventional. So, you know, I have people every day that that ask some would say it in a very positive light, like, I hope he really does this. Wouldn't that be crazy? Or others who uh, are hesitant or even opposed to it. The only thing that that's that I would say is off the table is that people should be, you know, the notion of being surprised by that. Again, he's going to do uh, what he believes gives him the best chance to get back in office to save the country, not even for his own political success. Uh, but, you know, I think he, many of us believe that this is life and death for the nation and for the constitution and for capitalism and for sovereignty and borders, you know, basic things that both parties would have always agreed on. Hmm. Now, literally they don't agree on them. their own incumbents in their party in swing States like Senator uh, Fetterman are openly acknowledging and questioning the, the, departure from just absolute norms. There's a sitting congresswoman that's comfortable giving a speech saying her top priorities are the sovereignty and the the goals of a third world nation. In her in her list of what she was focused on, America was never in the calculation. That's all to say if Donald Trump came to the conclusion that um, with RFK uh, we can win and we can govern, he would do it. Um, This is an unconventional, asymmetric uh, thinker. And it would not it would not surprise me. I think the I think the question and he you know, there will be many people around this raising this. And even if they didn't, he'll be thinking about it. It's practically what does that look like from a governing standpoint? Right. I mean, while it would be, I think, dynamic um, and a lot of upside politically in a campaign, there, there would be some practical governing challenges that if those aren't ironed out on the front end of what that deal looks like, of course, we're talking about the, the, the man who wrote the, the blue book on, or, or the black book on, on, on the perfect deal. Uh, but if he doesn't iron that out on the, on the front end, it could be, you know, very practical challenge from a governing standpoint. So final question, and I wanted to sort of reserve it because it's such a, it's such a softball because we've been all witness to the swift uh, unstable elements level erosion, uh, like a uranium 235 erosion of the relationship between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Now, this seems like 
uh, poison pill from the start because Kamala Harris called Joe Biden a racist on stage right. and said that because of her skin color, Joe Biden didn't want her to go to school. Right. Like, it's a, like that's not going to make for a great, there's one, it's one thing to endorse Ted Cruz. It's a different thing to say you're a vicious racist who hated me because of my skin color. And Kamala Harris said that to Joe Biden. And then he picked her, he rewarded her for saying that, uh, and spot talking about the suicidality of, of wokeness. And now they run a what is what seems like an, an absolute nightmare of an administration. The two seem to hate each other. You've been on the inside of these dynamics. One of our buddies, you know, wrote a book on it recently, Charlie Spearing, called Amateur Hour, talking about Kamala Harris's absolute uh, just calamity in the White House. Now everyone hates her. Uh, from your perch being on the inside of those relationships and seeing that the dynamics what's your what's your what's your status when it comes to Kamala's relationship with Joe well to be fair to Joe I'm not sure he knows who his vice president is um <laughs> really got him yeah no I'm, I'm really I, I I'm not sure that that he's aware of any dynamic or any uh, strife or tension uh yeah, they have a real issue. Shocking, right? You pick someone exclusively based on their skin color, which is everything that this country has sought to avoid. It is what made America great. Again, that we wouldn't be defined by the content or by the color of our skin, but the content of our character. So, you know, are any of us really surprised that when you have one metric, which is what color are you, as if that's relevant to who should be number two in leading the free world, that that would not work? Um, so, you know, color me surprised that it hasn't worked out. She should have never been there in the first place, just based on her lack of qualifications and how she ran her campaign and her policies and her views. Setting that aside, uh, he's, he's created quite a political predicament for himself, Benny, because how you replace her, uh, he's already hemorrhaging support from the African-American community and other important constituencies. So knocking off and knocking out the first black uh, female vice president, I think would create, you know, political firestorm, which leads to the, on the really only alternative, their only potential salvation here is that somehow they work out a deal with Michelle Obama, which I don't, you know, I think that's far beyond a conspiracy theory. I think it's there for the taking if she wants it. I think Biden would do any deal with her um, or his handlers would that she wanted, whether that's as vice president or as replacing him as the nominee. And I would just what I would be very surprised by is if it's actually Joe Biden and Kamala come November because of where just objectively the polls already are. The, the race would not be close. Um, the American public, not Republicans, but the American public is now caught on and developed such a distrust of what not only what they hear from the media, that happened in from 2000, probably 18 to 2020, the erosion in, in media. What's happened since 2020 is something entirely different. They have rightfully lost trust in our most important institutions, which breaks my heart. Um, I grew up being you know, proud of the institutions of this country and thinking that we had the world's greatest um, innovators and in labs on energy and medicine and healthcare and law enforcement and justice. And what the American people have seen is that scale, those institutions have been destroyed and they've lost their trust. So what, what will be attempted this site? You know, November's a long way away. These institutions will collude with the left 
and with big companies, big tech, global corporations, leftist act, um, uh, activists to, to give us our COVID round to our new Russian hopes, whatever it is. I'm bullish about November, Benny, because I think the American people are smarter than that. They've watched 2016, the narrative around that, everyone will acknowledge now it was a complete lie. I mean, I was in the administration where we were constantly investigated about Russia collusion. And I'm going, wait a minute. I was a part of the 2016 campaign in a pretty senior capacity. We didn't have the capability of coordinating with the people on the other plane, much less the KGB. Like, And yet we saw a three-year investigation in that, which was a joke. The American people see that. And then we've seen what's happened with COVID from 2019 through 2021. We're now watching what's happening with the law enforcement and the judicial community around the persecution of Trump. And so I think the race, the reason I'm so bullish outside of the fact that President Trump's policies worked and Joe Biden's have not, they've destroyed the country. Set that aside for a minute. The American public's immune to whatever the big lie is, not not at large. There will there are many still gullible, but but at scale, whatever they have up their sleeve uh, will not have the same effect, dramatic effect, uh, un unsuccessfully in 2016. Unfortunately, successful in 2020. So I uh, I I suspect that the there's only one way. That's a long way of saying I think there's only one way of getting Kamala off the ticket, and that's somehow getting Michelle Obama on the ticket. And I am almost certain that, that that they're working on that in some capacity and where where she is on it. I don't know whether whether or not it will happen. I don't know if they want to actually go back to the White House. They've had the advantage of of essentially running the country for four years without any actual responsibility or oversight or blame. So if they think that they can engineer another victory and be in control from Massachusetts or Hawaii, that's exactly what they'll do. I think the polling, my concern is that the polling is so clear that, that the president is in such a strong position. Everyone on their side will pull out every stop to make it competitive again. And that and that's why we can't take anything for granted. It's why I wrote the op-ed I wrote um, a week or a week and a half ago in Daily Caller that irrespective of your feelings of Donald Trump, you know, overwhelmingly the, the party loves him and supports him. But as just ordinary non-political Americans irrespective of their emotions around that, now is the time for them to sober up and say, okay, I have two I have two choices. And it's not just the person I'm voting on, far more importantly, it's the policies. And in my view, it's black and white. There were policies that led to energy independence, a roaring stock market, um, you know, 401ks skyrocketing, massive uh, employment, record employment uh, and take-home pay for not just Americans who have always done well, but even for minorities and, and world peace and a secure border. So do they want that or do they want or do they want whatever new tragedy is on the nightly news daily? And you can't you can't keep up with them, you know, as a Georgian, as an American, especially as a Georgian. We're broken hearted today over these three service members that were that were killed in Jordan. They were Georgians. And you look at the incompetence that has led to, the, to these scenarios. Two Navy SEALs lost the week before. You have the Red Sea under attack by the Houthis, which is a proxy to Iran. You have a stronger North Korea, a, a rich Iran, based on what we've done with energy and oil prices in driving up and enriching countries, our enemies, like Iran and others. Russia has been a big benefit a benefactor to it. You have a war in Ukraine, You and you have millions pouring across our border 
which some are literally known terrorists. I mean, we watched that, what, two and a half weeks ago, a known terrorist coming across the border, and he got caught because somebody happened to have a, a cell phone video of him. There are millions of these people coming across the border. So my my plea for uh, the country and, and my prayer is that people will get sober and set the two names aside um, and just look at the policies and look at the outcomes and the results. And it is undeniable what condition the country was in from 2016 to 2020 versus the state of the country and the and the risk of the world right now um, based on the policies of, of Joe Biden. From your mouth to God's ears, the great Nick Ayers, who steered this administration rightly in the first term and is steering now uh, culture correctly, hopefully into Trump's second term. Thank you so much for being on the program. Yeah, thank you, Benny. Thanks for what you do. We thought it would be a little gauche to invite one of the potential VP candidates on the program. You're going to get the same response, right? They're all coached to say like, I support Donald Trump and well, I support his pick, right? So you just kind of kind of get that. And so instead we thought we'd invite somebody who is the biographer of one of the top picks potentially for Donald Trump in the VP race. We've done our own sort of sleuthing about in these arenas and have found that Tucker Carlson's name is always atop the list of potential vice presidential picks. Certainly it would be earth shattering, asymmetric, and quite interesting. And so joining us now is Chadwick Moore, Tucker Carlson's official biographer. Chadwick Moore, the official Tucker Carlson biographer, joins the program now. Chadwick, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Benny. Great to be with you. I got a real heater for you up front here. Is Tucker Carlson a war criminal? Is he going to The Hague? Tucker Carlson said he wants to invade Canada, and it looks like he did. Here's the clip of Tucker Carlson in Canada with the masses showing up for his speeches. It's just unbelievable. It's hard to, like, think of a, a pro sports team that could draw these kind of crowds, and yet Tucker Carlson, someone who's not Canadian, is doing so in Canada. What, what say you about this? I mean, what is that, like a third of the entire population of Canada? It's not a very big country. And look at that <laughs> audience. You're absolutely correct. Uh, the Canadians love Tucker Carlson because Canadians love anyone who talks about them, even in a mocking way. This is what Tucker still told me about the book. Uh, so it's great to him. Uh, he's actually really popular in Canada. He didn't even realize that until he had some Canadian guests on his show. Um, I didn't realize that they got his Fox News show there, but they 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 did apparently. Uh, and uh, you know, it just goes to show his appeal it goes beyond the kind of tit for tat of American politics into this greater uh, conflict we're seeing in the Western world of uh, you know essentially the populist versus the status and a sort of freedom loving civil libertarian mindset that is that goes beyond just what we see in the United States. Uh, it, it certainly is in Canada and certainly in Europe too. Yeah, those people seem to be uh, starving, particularly for freedom, and they seem to really resonate with Tucker Carlson's message so much so that the leaders in Canada, cortisol and estrogen filled, went into a raging meltdown, calling a Tucker Carlson a Putin ally, Justin Trudeau, some of the some of Trudeau's ministers saying that Tucker Carlson's a threat to national security. I mean, what great publicity! You can't get better than that. <laughs> 
No, you can't. When Canada's weird cross-dressing prime minister starts saying you're a threat to national security, or at least as allies, I think that's probably uh, a great thing for Tucker Carlson. Uh, and, you know, he's had the same thing here. I mean, before his show was taken off the air, you had um, AOC and Chuck Schumer and various other people in Congress, Democrats saying similar things and also saying, you know, he needs to be shut up and have his show taken off the air. They kind of succeeded in that last one uh, because of uh, uh, the threat they see him as. But of course, anyone who knows him, anyone who spent a lot of time following him is, of course, I did for this book and got to know him really well. And anyone who just listens to a speech, a one hour speech he gives, you know, really gets a sense of uh, who he is that, that makes these people look like absolute buffoons. You know, you come to realize, as I did, especially working on this, uh, just what a sort of down to earth guy he is, and uh, and and what a uh, you know sort of thoughtful and 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 you know actually quite deep person he is, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. I would want to. I, I do want to put a pin in this because it is, I suppose, ancient history. Now we have the Tucker Carlson Network, of course, and Tucker's off doing his own thing, making some of the largest interviews, perhaps the largest interviews uh, ever seen in mankind. Right, like his interview with the president of Argentina. Uh, has some 500 million views. I mean, that's that's the most viewed interview ever, right? So, I mean, these kind of record-breaking numbers aside, Tucker was breaking record numbers every night at Fox News when you started writing your biography, Tucker. Uh, and then during that time, it is a shock to the entire, something that no one saw coming, Tucker gets fired in what seems what seemed like, like an absolute suicide mission for Fox, they haven't actually ever recovered from this. Uh, any insight now, nearly a year out uh, from like, as to like, why, like, has it, have we crystallized like why that happened? Like the official story uh, any more than at the time? Well, you know, I, I, you know, I put in the book Tucker's thoughts and what he he swears happened, and uh, and and uh, you know, a lot of that had to do with the Dominion lawsuit. Although everyone knows who follows this closely that Tucker didn't push any of those theories about Dominion. But of course, the timing and the and the forces that are in charge of not only the Fox board, but perhaps even that company, uh, I, I think what we can conclusively say is that it, it was clearly ideological. Uh, and whether, you know, whoever said to, to pull the plug, that's up for debate. But, you know, it was obvious that uh, that certain forces wanted a say in who the Republican nominee would be. Obviously, Fox News didn't want Trump. They wanted DeSantis. Then they kind of pivoted to Haley. Now they don't really know what to do. Uh, and Tucker was the, the the high priest of Trumpism in mainstream media. Uh, and aside from that, there are various other topics. He was taking a, a counter narrative on, even with his uh, colleagues at Fox, that was really upsetting a lot of people. Uh, and people saw an opportune moment to get rid of him. Uh, and of course, uh, that, that timing was pivotal because uh, not only... Could uh, it, it seem a little more serious and make it look like Tucker was somehow involved in costing the network all that money? Of course, he wasn't. But it could be used as a way to get people in Fox online, you know, and uh, and uh, or get them in line. And um, so then what will happen if they don't tow the party narrative? They can if Fox will get rid of their number one host. Imagine what they could do to any of those people. So they put heads on proverbial pikes outside of the News Corp building. Uh, including but not limited to Tucker Carlson, Dan Bongino, Steve Hilton, and said, you know, abandon all hope if you are a Trump supporter. 
Yeah, it, it seems to be that, you know, and, and you look at the people who are involved with that corporation and, and it's certainly not surprising. I mean, Paul Ryan's on the board and he's come out and said he would vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump again. Uh, and there's, you know, all these other sorts of corporations that have controlling interest in Fox that obviously have uh, monetary interests in, in, in non-ending wars and things of that nature, things of which Tucker was very much the, the strongest voice in mainstream media. Uh, you know, I think one of the big questions at the time was whether he would be as uh, effective not on Fox as he is that, as without them. And, and you know, I, I still think that's yet to be seen. He has a bit much bigger audience now. And as you mentioned those interviews, however, I, I still think there's an element of the fact that, that uh, our, our leaders still care deeply about what happens on cable and in mainstream media. Mm-hmm. They care less so about what he's up to on Twitter or elsewhere or for, or any people for that matter, uh, you know, because they're very sort of vain, shallow people. They're still very much a part of the prestige economy. They still very much want to see their face on television and they only watch television and read the New York Times and that uh, goes for both sides. So I, I think it has yet to be seen the kind of impact that he will continue to have because certainly when he was on Fox, he had their ear and it was the Republican establishment that really hated and feared him more than the Democrat establishment. Such an interesting point that you make about the prestige economy, but not about the influence economy, because I think in sheer numbers, you can't, uh, it would be impossible to argue that Tucker Carlson has more influence, uh, given the fact that he now has, you know, tens of millions of followers at his back and his following has grown exponentially. And now he's in control of his audience. Yet there is a subsection of people, particularly our elites, who refuse to view social media as a way to get news, even though the vast majority of the American people, that's the only place they get news, um, and is leading to the collapse of the news business itself, layoffs at the Los Angeles Times and so forth. And so is Tucker is Tucker leaning in to uh, something for the next generation, uh, sort of a, pre- a precursor to our next questioning here? Like, what's the strategy behind Tucker Carlson News Network? Well, even to your point also, I mean, this is the first presidential primary that the mainstream media had absolutely no say in. And the fact that it all happened in the independent media yes. and online. You know, President Trump refused yes. to do any of the debates. He would barely give Fox any airtime. Occasionally it's town hall. But uh, yes. all of this was decided by the influence economy, not the prestige economy. So, you know, people need to be looking for, uh, looking ahead to that. If that's a signal for things to come. And I think Tucker certainly has been. I mean, Tucker, even when he was on Fox, was the sort of bridge between uh, the internet and cable. He was reporting on things that were happening online. He wasn't reporting on necessarily what everyone else was. Uh, and he would be trending online constantly. Now, normally if a cable news host is trending online, it's because they had humiliated themselves in some way. But in Tucker, it was because they were reacting to what he was saying on cable. Uh, and he was bringing all these people to cable who wouldn't normally be there. And they certainly have not returned to cable with him gone. Uh, he's got an audience of, you know, and much like yourself, I think too, of, of young men who are completely maligned by mainstream legacy media. He's got a huge audience of young men who primarily listen to podcasts. They're online. Uh, and he seems to be really leaning into that audience, too, and, and listening to them and the sort of content that they care about. You know that Tucker Carlson does listen to the Internet and at the very least, like, leans into the content that young men care about because we do care who our fathers are. And Tucker Carlson, well, went at that cross-dressing prime minister of Canada and said, I know who your father is. To great aplomb to the Canadian audience. Play the clip. I'd like to get your reaction to this. Oh, you know, <laughs> got a Canadian tire for an hour. Uh, Justin, can you watch my kids? <laughs> I, I don't think you're going to do that. Put your hand on your country. It's totally cool. Don't worry. He's a good steward. Um, 
but he will collapse under the weight of his own ludicrousness and go back to Cuba or do whatever he does. But, You know, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's just too great to check. Though <laughs> so if I ever meet him, I'm going to demand a 23 in me, like, right away. <laughs> he seems to be living it up. <laughs> he seems to be having a great time, for sure. Yeah, yeah, he, I think he's having the time of his life right now, definitely. Uh, we do play the side-by-sides of Fidel Castro and Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau's parents did love to travel to... Castro's Cuba and we're swingers. And so who knows, you know, who knows anybody get a uh, DNA sample from Justin Trudeau, not don't need to ask how you got it, but yeah, we'd be very interested in finding out. We're also very interested in finding out about Tucker Carlson's potential future when it comes to politics, hoping Chadwick that you could fill us in on some of the intrigue around Melania's obsession with having Tucker's VP. This is kind of interesting. This in Axios, Melania Trump loves Tucker Carlson, and they're reporting that Melania is pushing Donald, something that we know she can do quite effectively, uh, to pick Tucker as VP. Have you heard any rumblings uh, about this? Do you, I mean, do you, do you know this to be true? I don't know. I was pretty shocked the first time I heard it. I, I, I hope it's true because I think that's sort of a lovely uh, thing to know about Melania. And also, but it's unusual. It's uncharacteristic, I think, of her to, to insert herself in that way. I'm not saying it's not true, but um, it would be interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that she had a great affection for him, you know, at all, especially this whole time I was working on this book. Again, it would be great if it were true. I, you know, th there's a few issues with this. I mean, firstly, they're both residents of Florida, so you can't have a president and vice president from the same state or you forfeit those electoral votes. I mean, I guess Tucker could change his residency to Maine if he were to become the VP pick, which you could probably easily do. But that, you know, that's the first thing to consider. I don't think you want to give up Florida's 20 electoral votes. But secondly, you know, I, I don't know if uh, – I've got a few issues with this. Firstly, Tucker personally, um, he doesn't – he doesn't like that kind of attention on his family. If you're running for political office, there's going to be a, a lot of scrutiny on your family. The one reason I think he would never run for office is simply he would not want to put his wife and kids through that that level of attention and scrutiny. You know, secondly, just getting to know him so well, I just don't think he has that that gene in his body that that says you know he thinks he deserves to lead. He doesn't you know think he he he's pretty happy with the station in life. And I kind of feel that same way too. I think that when you see someone who we really enjoy how they think or how they see the world or, or what they do for a living. You know, I think there's too many politicians and I don't really like politicians particularly. I don't really know why we need to force those people to run for office. You know, it seems to me that Tucker has really found his calling in life and found his station. Uh, and I don't know if you if number one, we would want him to give that up. And number two, if, if he should, uh, you know, he's such a once in a generation voice and he's so effective uh, at what he does. I don't really know if we would want to see that person going into politics necessarily. Um, thirdly, I wonder if, you know, I don't think President Trump necessarily would want someone, I think, I don't think he wants someone who has a risk of outshining him. Uh, although it'd be wonderful to see Tucker debate Kamala on the stage. I think Trump's probably looking for someone who's a little, uh, not as, um, uh, as much of a showman as he is. So you're, I mean, right. Correct. That is something that's been written. However, the campaign itself talks about Trump wanting to pick somebody who is America first to the core and who can carry forward the movement after Trump is gone, it's term limited to one term. And so you start to be, you start to think like relative to Trump, younger guys, Tucker is 
uh, 20 years, his younger, and, you know, or like a Vivek Ranswamy. Um, and those are the two names that keep that keep trickling up to the very top uh, in every single poll. Now, you said that Tucker Carlson would be lost and his work would be lost on the office of vice president. I'll counter you, Chadwick, for the sake of argument that there is nothing constitutionally that would prohibit Tucker Carlson uh, from not doing his show from uh, the Naval Observatory in the vice president's residence. And so he could just no, effectively do the yeah. show, do the show as vice president. Uh, what say you to that? No, you're right. He absolutely could do that for sure. Uh, but would we want it? I mean, I don't know if we want. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, Washington's so corrupting and gross. As soon as you enter politics, it just ruins everyone. It touches everyone who goes into politics. You know, they, they might come into it with wonderful ideals and they just get so destroyed by it. I mean, Tucker's obviously been around for a long time. He knows the game, but I, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm partial. I just like the idea that we have people out there that don't don't uh, crave that sort of power. Uh, in, that, in that in that capacity, and they're happy at their station in life. He sees himself as very much a storyteller and, and a professional observer, uh, and not a leader. Uh, and I think that he's still a little jilted sometimes when people do see him as such a thought leader, which of course he is by the nature of his work. But he certainly doesn't see himself that way. The people who kind of pursue political office, I think, are cut from a different cloth. They have a different um, a, di a different genome from the rest of us when they think they deserve to lead. I, I didn't really see that side of him at all that he had any yeah. sort of ambition like that. Look, I'm, I don't know, man. It's a handsome looking ticket right there, Chadwick. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> it would be Tucker, it would be really exciting. Tucker Carlson's been asked. So you're saying you're saying Tucker Carlson could do the show as vice president and make would be nothing constitutionally prohibitive for continuing his work. Tucker Carlson's been asked about this directly on a number of occasions. Uh, I'd love to have you decipher this as his official biographer and tell me, like, what what's he actually saying here in this response? And also, would you consider being vice president for Trump? It's, it's funny you ask. So, th thank you for asking me, Jaden. Um, and it's, it's funny that you paired those two questions together because they have the same answer. So you asked, would I ever consider doing kids programming? And would I consider entering politics? And there's a phrase in Western Maine that I, I just love. I don't know nothing about that stuff. That's the phrase. And I feel that way. I feel like there's this weird temptation for people when they like do something for, I mean, I've done the same job literally for 32 years. So, you know, and they, you get good at something if you do it enough. You know what I mean? That's why you want to go to the knee doctor who does it eight times a day. And if you, you know, get to middle age and you're like, oh, I've been, you know, relatively successful in my own stupid field. I'm good at this. I, I think I'd also be a great landscape painter or hip hop artist or movie producer. You got to shake yourself and say, no, actually, that's a very recognizable syndrome that afflicts mostly men, but also Nikki Haley, who may or not be real, which is called hubris, hubris. And hubris means the belief that you are God and that you're somehow good at everything. And I don't believe in that at all. And I check that impulse in myself on a daily basis. I'm a talk show host. That's what I do. And I talk about the world and my dumb ideas and 
politicians and the hijinks that they're up to, and I fulminate and scowl and stare blankly into the camera. Mm. And, you know, I enjoy doing that. I think I'm pretty good at it. How could I not be? It's all I've ever done. On other occasions, he said, oh, not me, Vivek. On other occasions, he said he actually likes Melania Trump and she's Eastern European, and so he's going to agree with everything she says. And so he's kind of danced around this. Trump, on the other hand, has said Tucker Carlson would be a great selection, along with Don Jr. saying Tucker's in the running uh, in recent reportings. And so what say you about answers like these? I think he's being honest. That's certainly that. That's the side I saw of him. Uh, and 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 he does do this thing where he checks himself all the time uh, and and goes to great lengths to sort of humble himself and has kind of rituals that I wrote about in the book to, as he said there, remind himself that he's not God. Because when you are a talk show host, that's the job description. The job description is I am God. I'm right. You're wrong for one hour of the day, but you have to not let that go to your head, which I think is you know. Why often people in, in cable news tend to come off as jerks because they do have that hubris. They do to ble- begin to believe that about themselves. Uh, that response was, uh, I think, a very honest one from him uh, and sort of sums up the exact side that I saw of him and, and what I was saying earlier. Now, then again, if someone like Donald Trump, the perhaps the future president of the United States, comes to you and asks you to serve, I don't know how you turn that down. Uh, and if he's being completely serious. Uh, that, uh, But, you know, then again... Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. You're right that, that nobody has explicitly said that he's he's definitely in the running, I don't think. Maybe Don Jr. did. Uh, but the name's being tossed around. Uh, final question for you, Chadwick, because you are the expert on the, the, the functional brain behind the empire of Tucker and the movement that Tucker Carlson has – uh, imbibed uh, and and where it's going. Um, do you believe that the firing from Fox News might have been one of the best things to ever happen to Tucker Carlson? As a commentator on the internet, I would tend to think, yes, I've seen a desire and a demand for Tucker's content uh, skyrocket and being outside of the box quite literally, I believe is going to be ex- exceedingly good. It certainly has been for me. But what do I know, right, about Tucker's thinking? Uh, your final takeaway thoughts on sort of this tumultuous last year? Well, we all thought that it would eventually happen, right? I think I think we all watched his show and we're like, okay, like one day, we all know this isn't going to go on forever. But you know, I think that we all believe that that there'd be one thing we could point to. You know, there'd be some lawsuit or some. You know, he's finally said that one thing on air that you really can't say or what have you. We didn't know it happened quite suddenly and quite so mysteriously. And obviously, Fox didn't plan for it to happen so suddenly either, because it took them six months to get a new show up and running and figure out what they're going to do with that time slot or however long it was—three months. So uh, uh, with Tucker, you know, he was well prepared for what happened to him. As he said to me many times working on this book before he was, his show was taken off the air. And then, of course, I interviewed him uh, afterwards. But in, in presciently, he was saying to me things like every job in television is a temporary job. And you have to remind yourself every day that this will disappear uh, as quickly as it came to you. And you can't let any of this go to your head. You know, he's, of course, before that. Now he's been fired from all three major networks. Before that, it was two. And he had many mentors before him, including Larry King and others. Who, who prepared him for this. His father also, who worked in television, were, were the first ones to say that, uh, you know, you could go into work Friday and your show's off the air by Monday, which is exactly what happened to him uh, three times now. 
so he he knew to expect this eventually, and and being the firebrand as they call him that he is, uh, he was he was emotionally and mentally prepared that this wouldn't last forever. Now you know after I interviewed him in the wake of it happening, while the dust was still in the air, he was certainly uh, very shocked. He sounded very exhausted, um, kind of confused. He was kind of, kind of kind of the most vulnerable vulnerable that I'd seen him in the time working on this book. Uh, but since then, he, he's seen, and that's understandable, obviously. And, and since then, he, he seemed to have bounced back. He seems to have a new joy about him. Uh, and he's far more unbound. He's, he has really no one telling him what he can and can't say, especially with this new uh, subscription model network that he's launched. So uh, I, I think he's still getting going. I think the network still has uh, a ways to go, and, and they're still rolling out how they want it to look. But uh, he certainly must feel a level of freedom he never has before. And he has his entire old team at Fox with him now. They uh, were either fired or left voluntarily to join him. And they're all now working on uh, the network. And they're all super closely knit and very loyal. So uh, it only seems like it's up from here. It certainly does. We are simply observers ourselves, humble observers. And when I see this walkout here in Canada or at the UFC, or at presumably a Trump rally uh, coming up soon, man, it sure does look like a movement. Sure does look like a like a like a political movement to me. Something bigger, something bigger than just a talk show host. But you know, what do I know? Humble observer, and we thank you for your work on this book, Chadwick. It was absolutely thrilling and a insight into the most important cultural commentator of our time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Godspeed, man. So, what say you? Trump? Tucker? Trump Ron Swamy? Does that fit on a bumper sticker? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Trump Vivek. What does it look like for you? Somebody else? The polling is quite interesting, but also it is encouraging because the polling shows a group of people to be nominated for vice presidency that is like, I don't know, median age of 35, maybe 40. It's kind of awesome, actually. And it's a very uh, spirited time to be in this fight because there is a lot of young energy and there's a lot of um, kinetic forces that will finally give, hopefully, uh, this generation a seat at the table. That's a good thing because actually the decisions that are made right now, we will have to live with. Most of the founders were in their 30s or 20s when they wrote the Constitution. They have to live with those decisions, laws, documents, and rights, and that creates a really great incentive for you to, well, carry forth a mantle and be wise in your decision-making because you're going to have to live with it. Joe Biden at 82, Nancy Pelosi at 83, Chuck Schumer at 79, Mitch McConnell at 82, Klaus Schwab at 85, and George Soros at 93. Well, they won't just, they won't have to live with the consequences of their actions. Their grandchildren might, but as we've proven many times, Joe Biden doesn't care about his grandchildren, doesn't even acknowledge them. So let's choose wisely and let's make sure that we have the right motivations to carry forward the America First policies once and for all, a lasting movement. 
That's what we're here for. And that's why we're fighting in the arena right alongside you. It's your boy, Benny. See ya.